2: You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. Hi all, it's Simon here. This week we have a special episode of Queers for you. In late November I presented at the Homosexual Histories Conference in Melbourne organised by the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives. This year's conference was titled Beyond the Culture Wars. My talk was on research that is forming the basis of what will hopefully be my first book, currently titled Sexy Capitalism. In the presentation I talk about the history of sexual relations within capitalism and how capitalism creates what I call a sex paradox. A contradiction between an explosion of sexual freedom that has been created by the functions of the system, and a need for capitalism to control this freedom in order to survive. I argue that understanding the sex paradox is a way for queers to move beyond the culture wars, which I believe are only ever designed to halt progress. I hope you enjoy. Hi everybody, uh, and thank you for having me today. Uh, I'm really excited to be here and to be able to talk. Um, So as uh, Philomena said, my name is Simon Copland, um, just some background on me, I'm a freelance writer in, uh, largely in gender and sexuality and politics, and um, currently a rock columnist for SBS Sexuality, but I've also written for The Guardian, uh, Overland Journal, The Advocate, Sydney Star Observer, etc. Um, I guess the title of my speech today is called The Sex Paradox, which is based on a theory that I'm working on for my book, so that's the connection here. Um, and it's one of those things where I've been working on it for, for a while and doing the research and getting an understanding, and now I feel comfortable to start presenting it to the world and, um, and uh, soon to be sending my first chapters to publishers to, to ask them to publish my book. Um, so what I wanted to do today is to explain this theory of this paradox as a way of moving beyond sort of the culture wars that we've been talking about for the last day and a half um, and to think about a greater understanding of the role sex plays in capitalism and how the role capitalism plays with sex. So some background to this: uh, my research, I guess, uh, I take a Marxist perspective to this work. So my research really started after reading um, uh, Engels' work, *The Origin of Family, Private Property, and the State*. And I put this photo up here. This uh, is probably the best uh, pride march I've ever been to in my life, which was um, in Istanbul, um, around the same time, it was 2012, around the time of the big, no sorry, 2013, around the time of the big protests in Istanbul, uh, and this pride march had 50,000 people um, turn up, uh, and I was actually reading angles at the exact same time, and this is a, a strong connection for me. Um, but this was an amazing, amazing rally that I went to with huge energy around it. It's, and, the, you know, you can only get a small picture of it, uh shot of that from the photo I took from the McDonald's balcony at, the point, at that point of time. Um, so, anyway, after reading this book, I sort of became fascinated with uh, the economic factors that drive how uh, we shape our families um, and... Thinking about what that means today, I don't want to go into Engel's work because I think that that's been covered quite a lot and I don't need to do that too much. But what I really did is I started to ask the question of how is it that capitalism um, allows sex to operate in, uh, in the modern world? Um, in particular, how, did, how does capitalism allow things like the sexual revolutions that occurred in the, you know, the 1960s and 70s? You know, I wanted to know, is that a process of capitalism just losing control of part of these processes, or are there other forces at play? Um, and this is where I came to the term the sex paradox. Um, and this is something that I've sort of thought of myself, I haven't found it elsewhere, I guess. Uh, and this paradox, I argue, represents sort of a fundamental nature of the way in which, um, society op- uh, which sex operates under capitalism. So here's the paradox in a nutshell. I argue that capitalism has created a space for immense explosion of sexual freedom, epitomised not only by the sexual revolution of things like the 60s and 70s, but also by the revolutions. Uh, sexual revolutions occurred in the late 1700s, the 1890s and the 1920s and 30s. At the same time, I argue, however, these revolutions also threaten the existence of capitalism itself, that capitalism creates sexual freedoms, but then those freedoms threaten the system itself. Um, and so like many of the contradictions of, of the system... Uh, capitalism is stuck, stuck in a sexual contradiction, um, forced to find a balance between allowing and shaping sexual freedom, but by not allowing it too much. Um, this is what I call a sex paradox, as I've said. Um, a paradox, I guess, which capitalism relies on to survive, uh, and one which it must conf- and which we must confront um, if we are to ever see I guess, at the end of sexual control, and, and you know, it's, it's a, an inherent part of the system just want to be clear here to argue, uh, because this is a big debate, I'm not arguing that capitalism is the cause of all sexual and gender control, uh, and that's really, really important. Uh, It's very clear that sexual and gender control existed well before the development of industrial capitalism, uh, and there are plenty of examples of that. What I'm arguing instead is a very specific form of this sort of control, um, one which relies upon different forms of coercion, uh, and most importantly, on in capitalism, creating a sense of sexual... Uh, a belief of sexual freedom uh, and the capacity for future freedoms and the capacity for future um, liberation, even though that um, future doesn't actually ever exist in a capitalist system. OK, so what I want to do, to do now is, is give you some understanding of the background that got me to this sort of conclusion and and some of the, the history that I've looked at in the early development of capitalism. Um, obviously, this is going to be quite broad because, you know, we're talking about a a big history and I've only got 20 minutes, um, but hopefully we can get an understanding of it. So the development of this concept came primarily through an investigation into sexuality prior to and um, in the development of early industrial capitalism. So prior to early industrial capitalism, uh, we lived largely, people lived largely in rural communities, uh, which in turn relied on the strength of the family unit. So um, we had systems where pe- marriages in particular were um, economic contracts all largely organised by the families, by parents. So parents would decide you know, who you're going to marry and it was based on um, creating um, economic strength. So parents would seek partners for their children who could provide best economic outcomes. So when you're seeking a man, so uh, a woman would seek a man with the best economic outcome uh, or the best best genetic outcome. So if you're looking for a wife, you'll want someone who who will give you good children. You know, and this is in a nutshell. Uh, Families also look for those who complemented their economic status. So you'd have, you know, know, farmers who would uh, couple up with other farmers, blacksmiths with blacksmiths, to create sort of a bit more economic strength, to ensure the strength of the family going forward. What happened, though, is that... Industrial capitalism dramatically changed this. Um, As factories began to spread in the, 1700s, people flooded into the cities. Uh, As this shift occurred, uh, both men and women found themselves with a new sense of economic freedom or economic independence, I guess we could say. Um, And in particular, they broke their old ties with their families in relation to marriage. So people were were able to break those ties that uh, that existed before. Uh, Of particular importance, women entered the factories... Uh, and for, for a period became um, uh, equals in the factory sense, equal in, in, in um, being a member of the working class, as, as with men. Um, this dramatically changed the nature of sexual relationships. Um, in particular, the economic foundations of sexual relationships started to diminish and people started to seek relationships based on love instead of based on economic structures. Um, the city also brought with it new sexual freedoms... Um, So people lived closer together and were no longer under the control of their families, as I've explained. This created new levels of sexual promiscuity, with more people refusing to get married, uh, marrying later in life, and um, having children before marriage, and you can see spikes in those statistics at the time. Uh, Also, people who we would now call homosexual, um, although that wasn't the term used at the time, um, began to be able to meet in bars, clubs, um, other sorts of venues, public spaces more regularly, um, and... In the process, you start to see the development of things like uh, drag or what was often called transvestite culture at the, at the, particular, at the time. Um, and later on, and we'll get onto this a bit later, you see the development of the terms homosexual and heterosexual in the late 1800s, um, where people will start to shape their identities based around their sexual preferences or have their identities shaped for them around their sexual preferences, which is a really important um, distinction to make. So you see new sense of sexual freedom, I guess, a new sexual sense of independence. But what had occurred at the same time is that this presented major problems for the, for the new capitalist, industrial capitalist system. The ruling classes in particular feared that love-based marriage would be a disaster. Love was seen as too fickle an emotion um, to back up such an important institution, um, particularly because marriage was a key to passing on inheritance to the next generation uh, and to the next male generation, um, so ensuring the continued flow of capital, so it had somewhere to go. Um, sexual freedom and love-based marriage threatened this by challenging the certain the paternity for men. So if uh, women were more sexually free, it, it was considered that that would challenge the paternity for men because you couldn't tell if whose, whose children were whose. Um, and through um, the passage um, of, of capital being potentially broken up by marriages breaking down. So if people um, got divorced more regularly, it would be hard to pass on the capital, particularly if you had second marriages, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So people feared that love would be not a good way to keep this institution going. On top of this, uh, women entering into the workforce sig- saw a significant increase in the child mortality rate. And just to be clear here, I'm not saying this uh, is women being, you know, bad and being bad mothers. I'm just saying this is this was kind of the reality. What happened is that capitalists were unwilling to pay for things like child support services or leave or anything like that and you can see this right from the early stages and so women were either, you know who are having children are often either forced um, to leave them at home or with other people or to bring them into the factory themselves uh, and this was obviously a very hazardous space and you actually saw huge spikes in, in the big industrial cities of child mortality and so what capitalists were seeing were their next wave of their working class were dying in front of their eyes and they weren't particularly excited about that fact so whilst capitalism created the chain conditions for these sexual changes, um, they very soon saw them as a threat to the system. So the problem for the ruling classes, however, is that this, uh, these sexual freedoms were inherent to the system themselves. Um, so capitalism re- relied on the mass production of the city and the so-called economic independence of wage labour, and so returning to the old system is just impossible. So it was forced to adapt, um, and it did. Uh, so, in for example, in the Victorian era, you see... Um, the ruling class was turning the idea of love-based marriage on its head, championing the concept that women who truly loved men would become fully devoted to them. So they would become fully devoted housewives, and they would become pure and chastised, and you weren't allowed to have sex until you got married, because otherwise you you didn't.
0: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long.
2: Um, this was led by Queen Victoria herself, um, who pushed the ideal of a pure woman. So she was the first person to have the, sort of what, the standard white wedding, uh, the white wedding dress, which became a symbol of purity and a symbol of, of female purity, and it was really led from that sort of charge. Um, so this cultural shift also allowed ruling classes to ensure the dominance of men in the economic realm of marriage, in particular allowing the continuation of the institution of coverture, Uh, which gave men um, all legal rights over women once they entered marriage, which is a legal institution that existed in the time. Uh, Further to this, we saw women being pushed out of the workforce, um, therefore forcing them once again to rely on men for economic independence and to look after children. So, uh, as I said, childcare and maternity leave was considered too expensive um, for capitalists to provide, um, so they were unwilling to do so. I mean, at the same time, they saw that women needed to, you know, be looking after children, or they said that women needed to be looking after children so that the next working class could, um, could exist. Um, so they said that women staying at home was sort of the best outcome, according to the, to the system. Um, this occurred through a range of measures, both legal and social. Uh, governments instituted things like family wages, which allowed uh, men to earn enough to, to cover the entire family. Uh, women were often barred from entering into the workforce after they got married. Um, but also, capitalists worked to wedge male and female workers. Coming into the system a bit later, women were largely uh, ununionized at times, you know, this is going into the 1800s and 1900s, uh, and were offered lower pay, etc., uh, etc. Um this created a split where men uh, saw women, uh, women as a threat to their to their wages and to their conditions or were told that women were a threat to their wages and conditions, and therefore you see a split between men and women. Uh, and so you see men and male dominated unions supporting legislation that pushed women out of out of um, the system. And just as a side note, this is the exact same thing that ruling class is doing with um, refugees and immigrants at this point in time, and you see the exact same language being used now that was once used against women 100, 150 years ago. Um, And finally, the ruling class has reacted against the growth of sexual promiscuity and non-heterosexual sexual activities. Um, So what, what we talk about here, and this is the creation of the development of identifiers around sexual Um, around sexuality. So you see the the development of those terms heterosexual and homosexual with a desire that uh, you have a, a, a clear um, identity factor around that, heterosexual being the normal and homosexual being the abnormal, and this allowed us to identify the abnormal sexualities and to start to pathologise and criminalise those sexualities. So queers were pushed into um, institutions, into prisons, um, they were faced, you know, forced lobotomisations, all these awful things that we knew that they happened right up uh, or that continue to happen in many, in many places. So here we can see how sexual relations are, um, in, my, in my view, shaped by our capitalist system. While capitalism created the conditions for sexual freedom, this sexual freedom um, threatened the very system itself, um, and this was a great contradiction, one that the ruling classes required and continue to require to management in, in unique ways. In doing so, this shaped what uh, Michelle Barrett calls the family household system, a system in which a number of people, usually biologically related, depend on the wages of a few adult members, primarily those of a husband father, and in which all depend primarily on unpaid labour of wife mother for cleaning, food preparation, childcare, and so forth. The ideology of the family is one that defines family life as naturally based on close kinship, as properly organised through a male breadwinner with a financially dependent wife and children, and as a haven of privacy beyond the public realm of commerce and industry. So that uh, ideology was created in order to deal with this contradiction. What I would call a capitalist family was born, or maybe you'd call that a nuclear family, which is quite common terminology these days. Uh, One that uniquely managed the demands of sexual freedoms while ensuring these sexual freedoms do not threaten the system. So I guess I'm interested in what this looks like um, today uh, and how this plays out. So the family, this family household system that Michelle Barrick talks about, was probably likely most uh, expressed in the, you know, was strongest. Uh, in what Stephanie Coutts calls the glorious period of traditional marriage, which is in the post-war period um, of the 50s and 60s. So what we see is a combination of events here that sort of um, created the system, uh, and then an explosion of that in the 1970s. So while women worked heavily during the Second World War, many were quick to leave their jobs um, in order to allow male male soldiers to return to the workforce. Uh, The post-work baby war... Boom forced many women back into the home, looking after the biggest generation our world has ever seen of people of children. Um, the increasing wages came with huge economic expansion, allowed for this to occur. So um, men were earning lots more money, so that women could um, be back at home largely. Um, And these shifts brought with a new level of social-economic conservatism, uh, with the era seen sort of defined by this male chauvinism uh, and oppression against gays and lesbians very strongly, Um, in difference to the 1920s and 30s where we saw a sexual revolution, uh, which saw a growth of of sexual freedom. Um, Like all these periods, however, uh, this era was met with contradiction. Um, The seeds of sexual and gender freedom were once again being sowed at this particular point of time. So while many women went back to the home, many others stayed in work. Uh, and that is quite a common trend. And in fact, the workforce, female workforce participation grows in this period despite the cultural understandings we have. Um, gay communities also began to f- continue to flourish, um, particularly in big cities like San Francisco, New York, London, Berlin, Paris, etc. Um, and most importantly, the economic growth started to give people a picture of a new and better world. Uh, with research, for example, showing that while women uh, in this housewives in this time were happy, they believed um, that largely that they wanted that their daughters not to be housewives. They wanted their daughters to not have that life. They wanted a better life for their daughters in the future. So you see this sort of development of a, of a, of a, of a picture beyond this. And so what happened in the economic crash in the 1970s is that these contradictions burst onto the scene. Um, so with unemployment rising, uh, inc- uh, women were forced back into the workforce en masse, um, largely taking low-paid jobs to sustain their families. Um, in the economic downturn, who yeah women... Um, uh, could be paid less. Were often favoured over men in this period, and that's a period of because they weren't in the workforce, they were less unionised, so they could be paid. They could be paid less. They were paid less. They were forced to be paid less. Um, this, um, in particular, became particularly true with the growth of new service-based industries and the, with the loss of manufacturing jobs. Um, and this was developed also with, uh, sort of also matched the birth control uh, increases and the, the development of the pill, which gave women greater sexual freedom at this particular point of time, um, and the ability to control over their own reproductive decisions. Um, and also with the form, with the breakdown of the former economic orders, gays and lesbians began to find a space to express themselves more formally, which, you know, we see through the Stonewall rights and the, and the development of the sexual revolution in the 1970s. Again, the ruling classes resisted these changes. Homosexuality remained illegal for a time, and we've all spoken about the right-wing backlash to this, the culture wars that existed at this particular point of time. Yet, what I argue is that once again, the system adapted. So in the 1980s, with the development of the neoliberal era and the hyper-individualism, you have these distinct identities, uh, women and homosexuals, that used to be largely pathologised or pushed into the non-capitalist realm, and what you see with the development of the neoliberal era and the sort of need of sort of a growth of globalisation which required more work, uh, people, more people in the workforce, you see the bringing in of these two groups into the capitalist system. So queers are allowed to enter into capitalism as long as we act just like us and we don't ever present a threat to the uh, sort of the institution of the family or marriage anymore. So that's part you know, part of the, the sort of systems of marriage, for example, and campaigns around that, that have focused on sort of us being just like everybody else has been a really important part of that. And women were told you can come into the come into the workforce, have your economic freedom, but you'll also be uh, but also continue to need to breed and to have children and to look after the home. And if you don't do that, you'll we'll shame you and, and make you tell you that you're selfish and that you care more about your career than you do about your family. So you can be part of the system, but you still have to do all of your other duties at home, which we won't pay you for. Um, And so what you've got is a situation in which capitalism adapted, brought people in, created a sense of um, progress and liberation when that is not actually what's occurring. What's occurring is that the old system survives, but you've just sort of got people brought into the system. So what I'm arguing here is that sexual and gender equality and freedom are only ever granted when they can be incorporated into capitalism. Capitalism adapted adapting to changes and to the sexual uh, revolutions that have occurred over the time are making progress look like it's happening when real changes are actually being fought against at every turn. I mean, this contradiction is inherent to the system. It's just it's this there. So, finally, how do we bring this back to the culture wars? Uh, throughout this talk, I've spoken about uh, a number of cultural measures the ruling class have used to control sexual freedom. So, for example, in the late 1800s, capitalism adapted the growth of love-based marriage by shaping the very different definition of love itself. So it used a cultural means to shape the definition of love. Capitalism has incorporated the demands of the movements of the 60s and 70s, for example, by reinforcing norms of marriage, um, monogamy and sexuality using cultural-based um, means. Uh, and one, of, one of the best examples I can think of this in the, in the modern day is the prominence of the discussions around the gay gene, which is a cultural um, thing, which, which to me is a way to ensure that homosexuality remains a minority concern. If we're just born this way, then it's only the small portion over here that are born this way Um, You can't change that, and therefore it's not a threat to the system anymore. It's just a minority that we can just incorporate into the system. So what I'm arguing is that ruling classes use cultural wars really effectively as a way to ensure they can 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 maintain control over our sexual lives and sexualities. Um, However, even though uh, though this is framed through things often like religious uh, morality, um, we've talked about that quite a bit here, the usage of the cultural wars always has a material underpinning. Um, culture has been used as a way to ensure the sexual paradox of capitalism does not completely burst open. Uh, And I guess this is where I leave. Uh, In the last 40 years or so, the left has has largely fought its battles in the cultural space, I would argue, as well, Um, in many ways because that is where we've had the most significant victories and it's where we have uh, the strongest voice. Um, And these victories have been really important, and I don't want to deny that these victories have not been important. Uh, However, at the same time, as the title of this conference suggests those victories potentially reaching their limits, I guess, uh, and with sexual uh, and gender control remaining extremely strong in, in all sort of Western capitalist societies. So the challenge for me is how do we effectively exploit this sexual paradox, this contradiction to our advantage, not just focusing on the use of culture as a way of control but undermining the very material releas- reasons these cultural attacks occur. Um, thank you very much. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back in about a week's time with a regular episode of Queers. In the meantime, as always, you can catch me on at Simon Copland on Twitter or at Simon Copland Writer on Facebook. And you can find Ben at Ben C. Riley on Twitter. You can also find old episodes at queers.podomatic.com or subscribe to us on iTunes. And please, as always, make sure you leave a rating and review to help others find us. We'll see you all next time.